Well, let's look at the, the parasha, the portion from the Pentateuch first. Uh, we will be looking at uh, Numbers, so uh, just get into those first chapters there. Uh, we're not going to spend too, too much time here. I have two things that I want to point out, and then we'll look at uh, Paul's letter to um, the believers in Colossae. Okay, so uh, Numbers chapter 1, verse 2, talks about counting heads. Let's take a sentence and see how many people there are in the building. This is the, the Baptist's favorite verse, of course. <laughs> I'm from a Baptist background, so I'm allowed to say that. It's very important to count everybody, right? Whenever we get together, we need to know exactly how many people are present. You know, I have to admit that's a real weakness of mine. People say, so how many people are in your congregation? How many people show up on a Shabbat? And I say, you know what? I don't have a clue. I just, I don't count people. It's just, you know, I'm not about quantity on, 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 in terms of us as a community. I'm about quality. I want to go deep together. I want to put down our roots. And uh, I, I want to grow powerful in His Spirit. And uh, he'll bring people when he wants to. That's my philosophy. Um, also in verse 2, it, uh, it lists the... Uh, this is specifically uh, a census, and this is notable. Uh, we had a lady show up at our door. We live in the country with uh, an envelope with the census material in it. Uh, uh, census Canada 2011. So how timely is this? Hey, to have, uh, have the census getting... Uh, getting the highlight when we're in the middle of a national census right now. Anyway, so they count all the guys from 20 years and up, and uh, it notes something very specific about um, what qualifies these men from 20 years old and up. It says in uh, Numbers chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, that whoever is able to go out to war in Israel... Alright, so basically they were counting, they were, they were measuring their fighting force. They were counting the warriors in the nation, is the idea there. And they had over 600,000, they had an army over 600,000 strong, apparently, if you counted the reserves. That's the, uh, that's the idea there. Uh, I have a commitment to try and keep my teachings practical, so why don't we try and break that down and see what we can get out of that, alright, on a practical level. Okay, so what it's saying there is, when a young man would hit the age of 20, he would start to go out with the army. He became a warrior in his own right. Why? Because that was the rough age when he was um, becoming more capable of engaging in combat, uh, conflict. Etc. Uh, in Canada, we're, uh, we're famous in the international world as a peacekeeping nation. I, I thank God for that. That, I believe, is part of our mission as a nation. So this whole idea about the, the militant aspect of things is maybe a little farther from my mind than it would be if we lived in other countries. But let's look at this on a spiritual level. It's saying when a, when a young man hits a certain age of maturity, that age of maturity is marked by his ability to do battle. Do you think that could apply on a spiritual level to each of us as disciples of the Master? Uh, could it be that when we reach an age of maturity, one of the hallmarks of spiritual maturity is our ability to fight on a spiritual level, not with people, but with the dark forces in this world? Perhaps we could say in the arena of prayer. Could it be that that's a real hallmark of spiritual maturity? I, I, I believe so. And uh, I want to I look at that with you for a moment. I, did Nazarites go to battle? Uh, they weren't allowed to touch a dead body, so I assume they would have been exempt from the draft, um, the Nazarites, yes. Okay, so we, uh, we are in a war in this universe. The war has been won. Uh, we read last week that Yeshua triumphed over the, uh, what were those two terms? Like the, the rulers and principalities. So the, 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 the spiritual forces that called the shots, he triumphed over them, he made them a public display of them, but um, we're still in a massive global cleanup operation here. After he, he took out their kingpin, he said, okay, I want you guys to go into the nations now, preach the gospel, make disciples, take the place for the kingdom, is, uh, is essentially the idea there as, as I read it. And uh, the, the, the writings of the apostles are full of battle imagery. Paul talks about um, faith and salvation and the gospel in terms of uh, the armor that a soldier would wear. Your, your, your helmet, so you don't have a sword come cracking through your skull. Um, your breastplate, so you don't have an arrow puncture your chest. 
Um, these are, this is the imagery that he used. Uh, Paul, Paul talked about shadow boxing. He, he talked about being a soldier for the Messiah. He taught our struggle. Our struggle. Uh, he, he, he used a lot, of, a, a lot of imagery that, you know, uh, maybe uh, for those of us in a peacekeeping nation is a little farther from our minds. But the reason that they use that imagery is because we are engaged in a struggle as the people of the God of Israel. Uh, we do have a spiritual enemy and we have a mission to kick out demons, to ask them out. Um, these are spiritual power centers of unrighteousness and he gave us authority in that regard. Uh, uh, Yeshua's brother, uh, Yaakov or James said, resist the devil. So we are, we are a spiritual resistance force in this world against, uh, against dark forces and um, their effects on our society. So uh, I, I, I encourage you in this area. Very often for me anyway, I don't really like to... Um, I, I don't like conflict. You know, I'd rather not pray spiritual resistance prayers. I'd, I'd rather not, you know, take authority over the enemy and say, Satan, leave the situation right now. I just, I don't like doing stuff like that, you know. I just like to be happy and um, pray really happy prayers, you know. But what we learn from this verse is, as we grow in our spiritual maturity, we will begin to identify situations where the enemy is at work and we will not walk away from them. We won't ignore them. We will wade right into those situations in the power of God and in the authority that Yeshua has given us, and we will resolve those situations in prayer. Um, I, this, is, this is something that I've really been challenged in in the last year. I can see areas where, uh, let's say, my family has been under spiritual attack. Sometimes I feel like we're on the front, front lines to a certain degree, and that happens. Really freaky stuff. And uh, so I, I've begun to, every morning, I just say, I resist the devil from our lives in general, in Yeshua's name, saying, I command you to stay out of our world. Stay, out of every, stay away from everything that affects us. And I just, I just do that every morning. It doesn't matter if I feel like I'm under spiritual attack or not. The fact is, I have a spiritual enemy, and the more dangerous we get for the kingdom, the more conflict we are going to encounter. It's the way it is. So um, I, I encourage you, if you have a family member that is, that, that is maybe suffering from a spiritual attack, maybe their faith is under fire, maybe they're having a faith crisis, um, maybe they're, they're wrestling with depression, sometimes those things can have spiritual sources. I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes. And I encourage you, if you have, a, let's say, a family member, a spouse, or a child, and they're going through stuff, I challenge you, grow in your spiritual maturity. And this is how you do it on a practical level. Verbally resist the devil. It doesn't work to think it in your mind. All right? The Father can hear your thoughts, but you have an enemy who thankfully can't hear your thoughts. He hasn't tapped your brain. He doesn't have those technological capabilities. So if you see a situation in your life or in someone's life where it looks like darkness may be, may be at work, there may be an assault going on, step into that and begin regularly and verbally praying against it in Yeshua's name. And I'll, I'll point something else out to you. In James chapter 4, he said... Resist the devil, but he sandwiched that directive between two other directives. What did he say? Submit to God. All right? So if, if our lives are not submitted to the Father, if we are not marching according to his directives, we are not going to have the same spiritual firepower that we can have. The first step is submit to him yourself. Be true to his word yourself. Then you can begin to move in that spiritual authority of resisting the devil and uh, his actions in this world. And then how did it conclude? The other directive was draw near to Elohim and he'll draw near to you. So I encourage you, you know, if you're, if you're going to be engaging in spiritual combat for uh, people in your family or your community, make sure you're submitted to Yeshua's authority first. If there's any sin in your life, deal with it or you could get your head spiritually blown off. Um, and draw near to the Father. So don't just wait, wait in and start re rebuking the devil or whatever. I encourage you, begin to, begin to praise Elohim, God, because he's enthroned on your praises. Begin to focus on him and who he is. And then in that atmosphere of worship, do your spiritual battle. That, that's what I would suggest. So um, go for it this week. I, you know, if I, as, I, as, I, as I talk about this, I'm sure that every one of us can think of people in our lives that are suffering maybe adverse effects that could be from spiritual attacks. 
And I challenge you, don't just be a hearer of this word. Be a doer of this word. Tomorrow morning when you pray, or when you're driving, or whatever it is that you really cut loose in prayer. Maybe you, go, maybe you, uh, you like to go for a walk and pray, or go for a bike ride and pray. I like to bike and pray personally, because it gets me out in the open and I can pray at the top of my lungs, and nobody thinks I'm weird, because when you're in the country, there's no one here to hear you, right? So whenever the time is, but I encourage you, next time you pray, begin to do this for people. And that, that is a hallmark of spiritual maturity. You're going to grow in your spiritual life as you do that. You will enter the census of the warriors of Israel. You will be counted among the soldiers in Messiah's cause. And I'm speaking on a spiritual level here, right? We're all clear on that? Spiritual level. Yeah. All right. So that's the first thing I wanted to point, point out from this. Um, the second thing is about the Levites. Now, this, this uh, whole portion is kind of challenging to connect with sometimes or make applications with because it's a bunch of numbers and a bunch of dead guys with funny names. All right? Really, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard for people to connect with this passage. It's like, okay, uh, I just read that chapter and I can't remember any of it. And I was thinking about the TV show I watched yesterday or whatever, right? So I'm going to try and break it down a little bit for us. Um, in, in addition to the census element, there's also the element of um, the Levites and their job description. The Hebrew there is the Levi'im. Everybody say Levi'im. And, uh, and then a specific subset of the Levites, the priests, or the Kohanim. Everybody say Kohanim. Yeah. All right. And there's some directives for them. Now, I, I don't know. I don't think we have any Levites in this room. Although in the Jewish world, there are very close, there are very close records uh, kept of who is a Levite and who is a priest. So, for instance, in the synagogue, if you have a priest, a Kohen in your midst, he'll be the first one to make Aliyah to the Bema and read. Uh, if you have a Levite, then he'll be the second. And that's one way that the Jewish people have kept very close records of who is a priest and a Levite. Now, none of us are that. So I guess we can just cut those, those sections out of our Bible. Just take a big black marker and cross them off because they don't apply to you. <laughs> Wrong. Um, maybe they do apply to us. Now, the, the scriptures say that Yeshua was not a descendant of the tribe of Levi. Our Savior was not a, an Aaronic priest. But, let me ask you, was he a high priest? Yes. Everybody give me a thumbs up if you think Yeshua is a high priest. Okay, we're on, we're on the same level here. Um, that means that he is the head of a priesthood. Now, I'm going to admit to you, this whole concept of priests and priesthoods, it's, it, it carries a lot of baggage for a lot of people, including me. Um, generally, in our culture, the term priest isn't used in a regular context, unless maybe it's talking about like a religious cleric, or it's talking about maybe a, a, a minister in the Catholic world. Um, but the, the, the term is a little more neutral in the Hebrew. It means like a minister in general or someone who officiates in an official capacity. So we have government ministers, for instance. It also can connote ambassadors. All right? So if you're an ambassador representing your, your, uh, your state to another state, then in, in some regard you're a priest of that state. So the ambassadors of Canada are priests of Canada. It's kind of, I'm kind of trying to give you a, a bigger idea of this word. Now, what's the name of the priesthood that our Savior is the, the leader of? Psalm 110. You are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, there's another one of those really funny names that nobody names their children in our society. And okay, I, I'm going to be honest with you, all right? This is something... When, when people start talking about like the order of Melchizedek or the Melchizedekian priestly system, it kind of weirds me out. All right, I think it weirds most people in in the West out. Like I start thinking about Mormons and weird little handshakes and holy underwear and in rituals that I just don't even want to know about. You know, like I, I have to admit, when I when we start talking about the Melchizedekian priesthood, most people in our culture automatically zone out. And I don't, want that happen to, I don't want that to happen to us. I'm going to try and break this down for us before we look at it on a practical level to make sure that none of us zone out, okay? The idea of a priesthood also connotes an agency. Everybody say agency. agency. All right? So to, to say that you're a part of a priesthood that Yeshua is the leader of may not mean much to you. But if I tell you that you work for an agency that Yeshua is the founder and director of, can you connect with that a little more maybe? For me, I can, I admit, to say I work for an agency and Yeshua is the head of that, that, that agency. I, I'm proud of that. That means something to me. I want to get a business card with that on it. 
that, that, that's the idea. Now let's, um, let's um, break that down a little bit more. Melchizedek is a Hebrew name. It's actually a contraction of two words, and it means a righteous king. Everybody say righteous king. So like a, a, a governor or a governator who is in the right and who brings justice to the world. Okay? That's the idea of a Melchizedek. Yeah, like a righteous governor or governator who brings justice to the world, okay? So, get this. If you are part of the Melchizedekian priesthood, what that means is you work for an agency that is led by a man who is like the righteous governor, who brings justice to the world. And his name is Yeshua, alright? He's the coolest Jewish dude ever. And he's also, and we worship him. I say that reverently, but I just, I want us to try and think in terms that people in our culture would be able to relate to. Alright? So, let, having said that, I, I'm going to think of this, uh, what's, uh, what would be a short term of Melchizedek? Uh, like, the big M, okay? The big M. Maybe if you were like in, in the hip-hop scene or something, you would talk about Melchizedek as the big M, okay? So I'm just going to say, for me personally, I like to think of myself as, like, I work for the big M agency, okay? I work for the big M agency. And maybe this isn't the kind of lingo that really you connect with, but this is the kind of lingo that I connect with, alright? It makes me proud of, of who I am and my job description. So let's have a look at, um, at what we, how, how these passages apply to us as people who work in the Big M agency, the Melchizedekian priesthood, alright? Um, Point out one cool thing firstly. This is a linguistic insight. In uh, the book of Numbers chapter 3 verse 3, it mentions the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests. Now what's the Hebrew term for priests again? Yeah, a Cohen in the singular. Actually, I have a good friend down in Regina and, he and his wife just had their firstborn son and they named him Cohen. Isn't that a sweet name? We're going down for his younger brother's wedding next Shabbat, actually, and I'm so looking forward to meeting Cohen. It's going to be very cool. Okay, so that's the singular. Kohenim is the plural. And uh, these anointed priests, do you know how you say the anointed priest in Hebrew? The Kohen ha-mashiach. Ha is the. What is Mashiach? Anointed one or Messiah. So the Kohen ha-mashiach is the anointed priest. It has the idea of a, a messiah priest, actually, a messianic priest. Um, this, this term here, which says the anointed priests, is koanim ha meshuchim. Everybody say meshuchim. It means people who are anointed. So this is an anointed group of agents. Now, something I like about this is... Um, you know, I, as a Jewish person who believes in Yeshua the Messiah, I would, I would identify myself as a Messianic Jew. In Hebrew, I'm a Yehudi, Mashiachi. Everybody say Yehudi. That's Jewish. Mashiachi. Everybody say Mashiachi. That means Messianic. So, you know, in Hebrew, to say you're Messianic is Mashiachi. You're all about the Messiah. You're all about Christ. All right. So you know you could. So you know the plural of that. Messianic Jews are Yehudim, Mashiachim. You don't have to say that after me, but you could almost put a little little spin on the words, and you could say Yehudim, Mashiachim, based on this passage, which would mean not just that you're a Jew who's all about Messiah. You're a Jew who is anointed by Messiah. You're an anointed set of Jews. <laughs> So, and when I look at the Messianic Jewish movement today, I see that. I, I see there's an anointed, there's an anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, on the Messianic Jewish movement to be leaders in the body of Messiah, to preach the gospel to the people of Israel and the nations, and to see the restoration of all things that our Savior prophesied would occur before His return. So, the Yehudim Meshuchim, anointed Jews. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out to you. Um, maybe you're like, that was totally over my head, Izzy. Um, I'm sorry. It's just, I wanted to share with you something from my own mind as I was reading this, and I was like, that's cool, you know? So, let's, let's get back to something practical now. Um, looking at the Levitical priesthood and how it applies to us as, uh, as uh, people who work for the Big M Agency. Uh, Numbers chapter 1, verses 47 to uh, 54. Numbers chapter 1. This is where it's going to get really practical. 
Okay, let's, let's note a couple things here. Firstly, what is the job description? What is the practical assignment? What is the mission of the tribe of Levi? Because that will tell us something about ourselves and the agency that we work for, of which Yeshua is the, uh, the chief. Let's look at that. What is their job description? In um, the very first thing we read is, these guys are all about the tabernacle and the stuff in the tabernacle. Verse 4. Verse um, 50, it says, Appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all of its furniture and everything that pertains to it. Alright? So these guys were all about the tabernacle. Now, what does tabernacle mean um, in Hebrew? Again, tabernacle is a big religious word. Um, It's, yeah... I'm not going to go there in terms of you know, some people in other languages it means other things and I don't, I'm not going to get into that. But what does tabernacle mean in Hebrew originally? It means where you live. It's home. All right. So the tabernacle is where God lived. The God of Israel lived in the midst of His people. It's the place that Yahweh called home at the center of the nation. All right. So that's what the Levites were all about. We're going to break this down a little bit. So let's, let's, uh, let's go there together. Did you notice it's called the tabernacle of the something? What is it the tabernacle of? Testimony. The testimony. Do we, use, do we use the word testimony in English very often? Maybe if you're on, like a, like on eBay or some sales page, there might be a list of testimonies where people said, you know, I bought this and it's really cool. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, that's an idea, uh, example of testimonies. Um, the only other term, the only other context that I can think of this word is maybe in a, in, a, in a legal situation, witnesses will give testimony what they have seen and heard. Maybe the word testimony is used there sometimes. And then, of course, as believers, you know, if you speak Christianese, you, you give your testimony, which means you tell your faith story, right? Your testimony. So the tabernacle of the testimony. Um, Maybe a word that would mean more to us also is the idea of a witness, all right? Testimony and witness is the same thing. So this area, this, uh, this building in the middle of Israel was where the, the, the national testimony was kept. What could you compare that to? Um, loosely maybe to uh, the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution. If you can imagine the building where those almost, those almost sacred documents are stored. This is the idea, alright? Um, witness. Witness. What, what have you seen? What have you heard? That's the idea of witness here. Right? So that's the idea of the tabernacle, first of all. Um, how, how does that apply to, uh, to us as New Covenant believers. Here's an idea. Did Yeshua send us as His disciples out to be His witnesses? Yeah. He said, you are my witnesses. Pretty straightforward. He said, you will be my witnesses when power from on high has come on you at the end of the Gospel of Luke. So, we're witnesses of Yeshua, His person, what He has done, who He is, the teachings of Him as our Rabbi. So if you are a Christian, if you're Messianic, then you are a witness. Alright? So the idea of the tabernacle to us can symbolize our mission to preach the Gospel. Alright? To talk about Yeshua every chance we get. To tell family members and co-workers and people at the grocery store about him as he gives opportunities. People on Facebook even. I wonder if you can, wonder if you can preach the gospel on Facebook. Some of these new contexts that are very popular in our world. I wonder if we could find innovative ways to preach the gospel to bear witness in contexts like that. All right. So that's the first thing that the tabernacle represents our mission to preach the gospel and to talk about Yeshua, alright? That's number one. So uh, mark that on your thumb. We're going to look at three more things that the tabernacle represents and then we're going to look at how it applies to us. Number two, what was at the very center of the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies. And what was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. That's right. Ark means box, okay? It was the covenant box. And if you were to lift up the lid of the covenant box, well, you'd die. But let's say you didn't die just this once. What would you see inside of that box? 
you would see, that's right, you would see the Ten Commandments. You would see tablets on which were the written word of God. All right? So at the very center of the nation of Israel, in this sacred precinct, was the written word of God, the covenant document of the nation. I'll give you an example of that in, um, in, in, in uh, Genevieve's in my marriage. In, in, um, in the Jewish world, when you get married, the man, the suitor, gives the lady a covenant document. It's called a ketubah in Hebrew. And on that covenant document is his marriage promises, his vows to her. And uh, you'll often make that a really beautiful and artistic thing in the Jewish world. Uh, some of you, I brought our ketubah one Shabbat for, uh, for show and tell. Some of you saw our ketubah. It's, it's wonderful seeing, seeing ketubahs. And um, they're, they're like, they're really holy, holy documents, really. So really what you could say is that the center of the national life of Israel was the ketubah, the covenant document. All right, um, the written word of God. That's the second thing that the tabernacle represents. The third thing that the tabernacle represents is prayer. Why? Because when people wanted to come and worship the creator of the universe, they would go to the tabernacle. Often they would bring an offering, let's say a thanks offering, if they had something specific that uh, they wanted to give thanks for. Maybe they got a, a really massive raise right when they needed it. Or, um, you know, give, give your example. Maybe, uh, maybe they were uh, going to die in some freak accident and their lives were spared. They would go and they'd bring a thank offering and they'd pray and say, thank you. Okay, so that's the third thing that the tabernacle represents. Prayer. Everybody say prayer. prayer. Alright. And the fourth thing, and this is the most important one, this is the one that binds it all together. The tabernacle was a place where somebody lived. Who lived there? Yahweh. Yahweh lived there. He was present there. So the tabernacle is all about Him. All about Him on a personal level. All about being close to Him. Alright, that's the fourth thing it represents. And uh, what, the, uh, what, the, what this passage is saying is, that's what the Levites were all about. That was their assignment in the nation. That was their mission on this earth. Let's, uh, let's, let's look at that a little further. It goes on to say about the Levites in verse 50, they shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around, around the tabernacle. Now this is great. All three of those verbs start with the letter C. What's the first letter C word? Carry. Everybody say carry. Alright? Because these guys, the, the nation was mobile. They were trucking around the desert. They were lugging the tabernacle around with them. So the, the Levites would carry this thing. What's the second thing they would do? A C verb. Nope. I'll read it again. <laughs> they shall carry the tabernacle and all its furniture, and they shall take care of it. Okay, so what's the second one? They take care of it, that's right. And they shall also camp around the tabernacle. What's the third word? Camp. Okay, so the three, three C's. They carry the tabernacle, they care for the tabernacle, and they camp around the tabernacle. Good job. Um... Let's just look at verse 52 now, continuing in this train of thought. The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard, according to their armies. The Hebrew word for standard is degel. Everybody say degel. D-E-G-E-L, degel. And uh, it means a flag or a standard. I like the idea of a flag, all right? Each one of the tw tribes of Israel had a flag. And on that flag was a picture of an animal or some object that symbolized the strengths of that tribe, what their unique capabilities were, what their special job was in the nation. That was their flag. It was what identified them. It was what they rallied around, especially in times of ba battle or uh, when they were mobilizing uh, as a nation. That was their distinctive, you could say, their rallying point. What did the Levites camp around? What was their flag? The tabernacle. the tabernacle was the Levites' flag. They camped, whereas each of the tribes of Israel would camp around their unique flags, and each one of them represented something. Uh, for instance, uh, Jewish commentators would say the tribe of Zebulun specialized in business. These guys were sharp businessmen. They made a lot of money for the kingdom. 
and their flag represented that, okay? So there's a camp in Israel of businessmen who are gifted in business, who are successful, who have the network, etc. Okay? And each one of the tribes of Israel has something that they represent. We're not going to get into that because uh, that will take a lot of time. It's a fascinating study, though. Just what I want to point out here, though, is the Levites, as priests, their flag was the tabernacle and what it represented. What does that look like for us? Let's, 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 let's take this on. Everybody you meet has a flag, okay? Every, every denomination, every religious movement, every church has a flag. They have a rallying point. They have a distinctive. They have something, and they say, this is what we identify ourselves as. All right. If you, if, you, if you study moves of God in church history, every move of God had a flag. They had a banner that they were given to fly high and free. Often it was something that was being restored to the faith that had been lost in the dark ages. Um, the written word of God was one of those early flags that were flown by men like, uh, like Tyndall and... Um, and Wycliffe, and uh, in Gutenberg, of course, and his invention of the printing press. Uh, justification by faith was a flag that was flown high and free by Luther. Uh, the, the, the experience of being born again and in internally regenerated was a flag that was flown by John Wesley. Um, you know, we could, we could go on. The gifts of the Holy Spirit um, was a flag that was a, that was a real rallying point for the charismatic renewal movement. Um, in early Pentecostalism, in some circles, it was tongues. I'm kind of giving you some idea here. All right? Um, in, in, um, well, we, could, we could look at um, maybe secular realms, realms also. Well, what are their flags? Um, well, what is the national flag of Canada? Well, the, the, the Tim Hortons Cup, of course. Um, what would be the, the, the flag of uh, different uh, political parties? Every political party has a flag, right? What's the flag of the NDP right now? Family. You know, if you listen to Jack Layton's speech um, on, on elections evening, he talked a lot about family. They're hitting family, right? And supporting family. Um, every... Every uh, flag, every party has uh, a flag. The the pirate party of Canada had a flag of uh, of um, piracy stuff. Yeah, it's like. Well, they usually have the Yeah, the, yeah. So th those those are some examples for you. Okay. So here's the question: As people who work for the Big M agency, for people who are in the the priesthood that's held, headed by Yeshua. What is our flag? What is, what, is, what is it that identifies us? What is it that we say, this is our distinctive, this is what we're all about, this is what we camp around, this is our non-negotiable? That's a question we need to be asking ourselves as individuals. What is my flag? As families, what is our flag as a family? What do we stand for as a family? When people from the outside look at us as a family, what does it look like we're all about? And, of course, as a community here. So let's, let's break that down together. I suggest to you that the Levitical job description is a great place. It's a great template for what our flag can be. So let's look at that for a second together. And I liked what you said, Sharon. Yeshua is our flag. That's right. Him as a person. Uh, let's, let's break down maybe some of the, uh, the subcomponents of Yeshua being our flag. Him being the person that we're all about. Him being the one by which we identify ourselves. Okay, firstly, testimony. What that says is we as a community are all about preaching the gospel. Okay, preaching the gospel is a priority for us. Representing Yeshua to the people at our workplaces or wherever. This is very important to us. Alright? We, we're, so, we're, so, we're so focused on preaching the gospel. We even preach the gospel on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Over the internet, wherever we are. Right? It doesn't take long for someone to talk with you and be like, you know what? This person has some good news and they just can't hold it in. They've just got to tell the world. All right? That's what the tabernacle of the testimony is all about. Camping around the tabernacle of the testimony for us means we preach the gospel. So, you know, every Shabbat when we gather, we're about Yeshua. We want to preach the gospel. We pray that the gospel will impact Prince Albert um, etc. Uh, second, tied into that, the covenant document in the ark. What does that mean to us? What it means is the written word of God. The written word of God is a non-negotiable for us. We camp around the written word of God. It is something that we identify ourselves with very closely. We, we publicly read from it on every, every week, hopefully every day, as families and individuals. Um, 
that's something that we value. I have to admit, it's easy for me to get together and, you know, read the Word and talk about it in a context like this because everybody else is doing it. The question is, what do you do for the rest of the week? Do you, does your Bible have dust on it? Do you ever crack open the Word when you're by yourself and you have some free time or do you grab the remote and flick on your favorite show instead? That's the question. That will communicate, like what you do here does not communicate your, true, your highest priorities, although it's a part of it, what you do at home with your free time is what will communicate your highest priorities. Uh, men, for those of us who lead our families, what do we lead our families in? Do we lead our families in discussing the Word and opening the Bible together? If, if so, that shows that that is something close to your heart, something that's a priority. If you don't lead your family in studying the Word and discussing it, it may not be a very high priority in your life. Maybe it isn't so close to your heart. I admit, sometimes, I just don't think about the Bible throughout the week. It isn't the first thing that comes up in my conversations. Um, I think almost all of you know my brother Colin. I really admire my brother Colin. Like, he is a Torah scholar in the making. He has such a passion for the Word of God. Like, he called me up the other day, and, you know, we don't really shoot the breeze. He likes to ask me, like, he likes to talk about the Word and what he read in the Word that morning and what he's been learning. And it's, it's humbling sometimes. I feel, like, spiritually depleted when I talk with him because I'm like, man, this guy is living and breathing the word and it challenges me and it makes me want to grow in that area so let me ask you you know if are you someone who is in the word and are you challenging other people to get in the word if not then repent it's really easy right don't just feel bad just repent say father I was I'm wrong I'm sorry please give me a new passion for your word because I just don't have it that's an area where I want to grow right I'm repenting in that area and I invite you to do that with me um, Okay, that's the second thing. Uh, the third thing, prayer. The Levites were all about ministering to the creator of the universe. They were all about facilitating prayer. If someone wanted to pray, often they would go to, uh, they'd go to the tabernacle and there would be Levites there and they would pray together. They would give thanks with the Levites. Let me ask you, are you the kind of person who will be the first to say, let's pray about this? Why don't we take, can I, can I pray for you? You know, it's, it's easy to pray when we get together like this. The question is, do you have a prayer life of your own? I, you know what, I, I'm going to admit to you, this is something the Father's really been challenging me on this week too. I, I've had seasons in my spiritual life when I had a very rich internal dialogue with Yahweh. I was always just talking with Him in my mind, you know. He would say things to me in my mind. He would, he would illuminate scriptures to me in my heart as I was going about the day. It was just, and it was so life-giving, so enriching. And I, that's, really, I've really di that's really died in my life in the last, I don't know, maybe the last year or something. I mean, I talk with him, you know, but sometimes an internal dialogue with the Father isn't the first thing that I turn to when I get in my vehicle, and in my truck, and I'm driving by myself. The uh, first thing I'll often turn to is the radio knob. I'll flick on the radio and I'll listen to music. But I could have some dialogue with Abba, you know? And so this is an area that he's hitting in my life. You know, do I just pray with my wife because I've made a verbal commitment to and because I should? Or do I have, a, or do, do I have my own prayer life also? You know, do you, am I the first in a situation where a crisis to be like, can I pray for you? That's, that's, that is our job as spiritual Levites. This is who you are as an agent for the big M. All right? So again, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're growing in that, that is so awesome. Good on you. I admire that. I want to be more like you in that area. And for those of us who are still growing, let's, let's just be humble. Let's repent. Um, let's be honest with the Father. And let's ask Him to fill us with His fire and to renew our, our relationship with Him. Because you know what? Seriously, He wants to do it way more than us. I mean, like, it wasn't you and me that was screaming on the cross as the nails were being pounded through our, our, member, like our limbs. Uh, have any of you been to the dentist? And like, maybe they made a mistake or they just weren't able to freeze your, your mouth entirely and you just wanted to throttle the dentist as he was like drilling straight into a nerve? Okay, if you've experienced that, then you know how painful it is to have a nerve literally hit. The biggest, some of the biggest nerves in your body go straight through your wrists and your, and, your, and your ankles, okay? So to have a big, rusty, rough metal nail driven through those areas is excruciatingly painful. And you know what? Yeshua went through that so that this could happen in our lives. So that we could be passionate about talking about Him. So that we could be 
all about the written word and doing it so that we could grow in our prayer life and have that real internal dialogue with the Father and be leaders in our families and in our communities in the area of prayer. Yeshua died for this. He paid a very high price. And honestly, when I look at it like that, it's like I'm going to clear everything out of my life. I am going to, I'm going to be brutal in my resolve to eliminate stuff from my life that will stand in the way of this happening. And then fourthly, um, the tabernacle was where the presence of God was. And I'm, I'm sure we've all been at religious events where the motions were being gone through and religious stuff was happening and it was just boring. And your heart felt empty and cold and it felt like God was a million miles away. I don't know, we've probably had services here where it felt like that. I don't know, I mean, you know, it's... And sometimes I think it can be kind of subjective too. One person will be like, oh, there's such a wonderful worship time. Thank you, Father, I feel so close to you. And you know, the other person will be like, I did not get anything out of that, you know? So, I mean, it can be a subjective thing, but what I get out of that is let's just, let's never just go through the motions. Let's never just do religious stuff, you know? Let's be about him as a person. Let's be about him, him interacting with him on a personal level, you know? Let's get together because we want to encounter him. And you know what? If it's not happening, seriously, just be like, guys, I'm just not feeling it. What, what, is there something wrong here? Let's just put the brakes on everything, we don't have a program. We have no agenda we need to keep. This is just about Him. And I mean, you know, in, in our inner service, we do have some different activities that we move through that are roughly based on stuff that it says in the Scripture to do regularly, but that's just a rough proposed, right? Through which hopefully we can encounter Him. But it's not about the agenda. It's about encountering Him. So... Let's really break out in that area too. Let's continue to be people who are not all about just doing a list of rules or following a set of commandments or praying certain traditional prayers. Let's be, about, let's be people who are all about His presence. Because you know what? Lists of rules do not attract people in our culture. Really. How many people go to a church and they're like, I love that church. They have more rules than any other church I've ever been to. And I just love rules. It feels so good to have the list of rules and to go down the list and to check them all off. I mean, really. It's like, I don't know. Nobody likes that. Although I, I, I love to-do lists. I have to admit, I love checking stuff off to-do lists. It's one of the highest experiences of gratification that I experience. But that's just me, you know. But um, what is it that draws people? It's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. Like, seriously. If, if like, there's a gathering and you're like, wow, God was there and I totally met with Him, that's what people are looking for. That's what satisfies our heart's desires. That's where healing comes. That's where He brings us to life. So let's continue to press in for His presence. Let's continue to prioritize that. And again, that doesn't just start on Shabbat, right? It's not like you come here to His presence. Hopefully you're already in prayer before you come here on Shabbat mornings. Hopefully you're talking to him on the way. Hopefully you're one of those people, just like the Levites, who carried the tabernacle where the presence of God was. Hopefully each of us as individuals are like people who carry the presence of God wherever we go. Right? We, he goes with us and we go with him. Yeah. So there's the idea. You know, we, we carry the gospel. We, we carry the written word. We carry his presence. We, just like the Levites cared for the tabernacle, we care for this. What does that mean? It means it takes time. It means it's a high priority. It's something close to our hearts. It means um, it requires attention. It doesn't just happen. The Levites cared for the tabernacle. What does it look like to care for these areas in our life? What does it look like for us as a community to care about this our mission. And then finally it says they camped around the tabernacle. So this is, this is what we camp around, guys. This is our flag, Yeshua, and these things that are connected with our covenant-based relationship with Him. I'll just point out a couple of cool, another couple of cool things um, from this passage to you. In uh, 153, it actually says that the Levites doing their job preserved the nation from wrath. Wow. So you know what, there were some guys in the camp of Israel and they made God really mad. Seriously, like they were jerks and they were rebels and they like, you know what, like there were quite a few times when Yahweh was like, I can't take it anymore and he just started killing people who offended him immensely. 
and who sinned and who deserved death. This wasn't just an emotional, like, um, he wasn't losing it emotionally. This was his justice in action, and he is the righteous judge, all right? There is such a thing as the wrath of God. In fact, if we look at Ephesians chapter um, 3, the wrath of God is mentioned here also. He lists things that are very prevalent in our culture, like sexual immorality. The Hebrew word there is porneia. Um, greed, which of course is materialism to a high degree. One sec. And, um, and then he says, it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So, so much for wrath not being in the New Testament. God has always had wrath. There are times when that wrath falls on a society, when, when the sin just hits that mark. Um, but what it's saying there is the Levites praying, the Levites facilitating worship, being all about the presence of God, studying the written word. The Levites were preserving their whole nation from that wrath happening, from, from national crisis or chaos, from maybe even from financial breakdown. So, you know, as an agent working for the big M agency, you're actually doing a lot of good for Canada. Every time you pray, every time you study the Word, every time you tell someone about Yeshua, you are preserving your society and the nation from the wrath of God. And you know what? He wants that because he, he doesn't want to bring justice. He would prefer to be compassionate, right? So we are his agents in bringing his compassion to this world. I'm thankful to see the Jewish community renewed here in Prince Albert. You know, not just as a Jewish community, but as a Messianic Jewish community. Um, you know, at Crown of Messiah, not all of us are Jewish, and that's fine, because we're all part of the family, right? But we're, we're a Messianic Jewish community, and we are like a revival of Prince Albert's original synagogue, uh, as I see it, and uh, I appreciate that. I praise Yeshua for that. You know, you... Coming to faith in Yeshua doesn't destroy the Jewish community because that's what Hitler wanted to do. That's what the devil wants. Coming to faith in Yeshua actually strengthens a Jewish community. And in, in the Prince Albert context, faith in Yeshua has actually reformed a Jewish community where it had died. It's like a resurrection. Isn't that a powerful witness right there? Hey, I know I've talked with Herschel. Uh, you know, he was the, the last president of, of Beit Yaakov, of, of Beth Jacob, the synagogue here in PA. And, he, he said it's, it's, really, it's really good to know that there are Sabbath services going again. Not that he ever goes, but it felt good for him to know that they're happening again. You know, it's like, yeah, there are Jews in the city who are praying to God on Shabbat. Maybe I don't go, but I'm really glad that that's happening. You know, and that's good. Um, hallelujah for that, eh? Um, verse 53, uh, the Levites had violent tendencies. Uh, Levi himself was known for his outbursts of anger. Um, he and, and, and Shimon, Simeon, they were uh, they actually killed some people. It was a very embarrassing incident in the history of Israel. And um, anyway, it's probably a really good thing that God put them in charge of um, killing all these animals in the sacrificial context because it, it gave them something to do. It kept them busy, you know, and so, you know, they didn't end up, um, hopefully, kept them busy so they weren't doing any damage anywhere else. Um, Anyway, um, there's, an, there's an example of this in um, Numbers chapter 1, verse 53. It says in uh, verse, uh, where is it? That's the... Uh, 52. 52. It says, um, the layman, and the Hebrew word there is czar, it means a stranger. Everybody say stranger. stranger. Who comes near, that is to like the holy, the holy objects and the holy precinct. The stranger who comes near shall be put to death. So, if you were like some guy, let's say you were from Amalek, okay? And you'd heard that like the Israelites had this massive construction project going on, and the whole thing was gold. And I mean, you know when you're kicking around in the desert on a camel and trying to rip people off and committing minor crimes of theft or whatever, like the idea of sneaking in and taking a lot of gold would be very attractive. So you can imagine maybe some of the Amalekites out there and they're like, you know what, we're going to go in and we're going to try and we're going to try and get some of that gold. You know, now this would make for a great movie, actually. But, and so maybe they would dress like Israelites. Maybe they, would like, maybe they would try and infiltrate, right? Maybe they would try and make it into the center of the camp and uh, maybe create a diversion while a couple of them snuck into the, the Holy of Holies and, I don't know, tried to stuff one of the golden cherubim in their pockets or something. I, I haven't thought through the details of this. Or maybe they try and blow a hole through the, the back of the tabernacle with um, some primitive form of explosives. Whatever the case may be, the Levites camped around the tabernacle 
And it was not only their job to take care of this stuff, but to guard it from outsiders, to protect it from strangers. So if you were one of those Amalekites, and one of the Levites figured out that you weren't really from Israel, maybe you didn't have the, the hallmark Hebrew schnoz or something. Be like, you're not from Israel, you don't have the Hebrew schnoz. Um, they, would, they would kill you for trying to infiltrate that area. Very high security. Yeah. What does that look like for us? We, we, are, we are a priesthood. And we have an area that is being committed to our care. You are a guardian of certain things that we've just been discussing. Will they come under attack? Yes, they will. There are movements in this world to water down the gospel or to eliminate the importance of it altogether. Sometimes in the messianic world, the gospel is sidelined and people kind of get this idea, well, you know, really, Orthodox Judaism is where it's at. And Yeshua is a nice addition to Orthodox Judaism, but he's kind of an accessory. You know, it's kind of nice if you've got your Orthodox Judaism and then you've got Yeshua, well, that's a really good deal. That's like the full meal deal. But you know, the gospel is secondary. Torah is where it's at. That, that, that's a common notion in the Messianic Jewish world, and it's wrong because our, our mission is to preach the gospel. And when it comes under attack, when people try and sideline it, that's non-negotiable. That's where your hackles go up. That's where you plant your feet and you take a stand and you, and you defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. All right. What are the other three things? Um, the written word of God, when strangers, let's say strange doctrines, wonky ideas, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. When stuff like that infringes on the written word, so that people get caught up with an experience, or some specific practice, or some strange doctrine, instead of the entirety of the written word of God, that is the point where you step in and you defend the scriptures as a spiritual Levite. Um, prayer. Prayer will come under fire. Honestly, I don't really ever feel like praying almost. I just, I don't know. Prayer is hard. I have to engage my heart, I have to kind of really start thinking, you know, and then if I have stuff I need to work through, then I need to do some business with the Creator, you know, so I mean really, like, who, I don't know, do any of you just, I'm sure for some of you prayer comes naturally, because some of you have very strong spiritual proclivities, and I really admire that, but you know what, for some of us, we don't feel like praying, and it comes under attack. You know, it's like, oh no, shoot, my alarm clock didn't go off, and I'm late, I just am not going to be able to pray this morning. See, prayer is under attack. That's the point where you dig in and you defend prayer, because it is your charge that you are charged to keep. Let's look at Colossians for, um, oh, ten minutes here, I'd say, if you want to turn with me there. So um, hopefully, hopefully those are um, some practical things that we can learn from the, uh, the, the Aaronic priesthood and uh, the tribe of Levi and their job description. I don't know, was that, was that practical enough? I hope, I hope so. Okay, cool. So, I'm an agent for the Big M. That's what I'm taking away from this. And I, I have some idea what that looks like. Alright, let's look at Colossians chapters 3 and 4. Um, there were, there were some things from last week's parsha, a couple of passages where people will frequently point to them and say, well, you know, uh, isn't the Torah done away with maybe? Because it, it looks like uh, these, um, this passage could be construed to uh, be saying that the Torah is done away with. Um, I'll give you an example. It says that there's this certificate of debt in Colossians 2.14 consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. A lot of people will say, yeah, that's the law. The law has been nailed to the cross. It's done away with. That's often, that's the pop interpretation of that verse. Um, I, uh, you remember uh, Levi and Heidi. They visited our congregation from BC, and they stayed with Genevieve and me for a week. Well, their dad wrote an excellent short article on that. And in that article, he pointed out that... Um, the word there for decrees is used in the Greek Bible for man-made laws. It's never used in reference to the laws of God. So Paul using this Greek term means he wasn't talking about the law of God being nailed to the cross. He was talking about like man-made decrees. Maybe, maybe he was even referring to uh, the picture of Yeshua being crucified and the, the, uh, the list of his supposed crimes placed over his head. You remember that? There, there's a list of our crimes, each one of us. We've created severe crimes against His Majesty's governance. And um, 
what it's saying is those were taken out of the way, those were dealt with, and it's gone. Um, also in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, um, it says, don't, don't let anyone judge you for doing Shabbat, for uh, celebrating Rosh Chodesh, the biblical new month, um, and for uh, festivals. Uh, quite often in the body of Christ, people will try and judge you for these things. Well, they say, well, you must be legalistic if you're doing these things. These things are done away. Or you're a Judaizer, etc., etc., etc. Okay, just refer them to Paul, because everybody bases these ideas on Paul's letters, and say, actually, Paul said that you're not supposed to judge me for doing this stuff. It's a shadow of Messiah. In other words, it's all about him. And it's a picture of him. And it's okay. Okay, um... It also says these things are... Okay, the New American Standard Bible inserts a word. Instead of saying a shadow of things to come, it says a mere shadow. They insert the word mere there. That bothers me. It's diminutizing the festivals that were designed to preach the gospel in, in full, full spectrum. All right. Um, and then finally, the last verse that's sometimes misconstrued as being anti-Torah is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 and on. It says, You died with Messiah to the elementary principles of the world. Now, the, the term there means this world's order. Okay? Is that a reference to God's order? No. And then it says, So why do you submit yourself to certain law, rules like don't touch this, don't eat that, etc., in accordance with the commandments and teachings of who? Men. Okay, so he's not talking about the laws of God. He's talking about, sometimes people like to make up a set of rules, especially religious people, and then they force you to live by them or else you're out of the club. Paul's saying, don't play that game. All right? He wasn't talking about the Torah either. Let's look at Colossians 3 and uh, 4 here. I'll just point a couple things out. I really love this. This is an excellent example of how Paul um, addresses two main areas. He addresses identity. He talks about believers and who they are. And then he goes on to address behavior, what they do. And you'll notice frequently in Paul's letters, he'll say, this is who you are in Messiah. This is who he is. So this is how you should act. And I just encourage you with this in general, um, even, even like in terms of, uh, let's say... Uh, criminal law, uh, legislation in the court systems, um, rehabilitation for people, healing, um, or if you want to help people understand the Torah and how it applies to their lives, don't go straight to behavior. First look at identity. Who do you see yourself as? Who are you? Because when people get that straight, their lives will turn around and their behavior will change. And Paul is, Paul is, he's really hitting this. And I, I, really, I really love that. I'll give you an example. In uh, Col Colossians chapters 3, uh, verses uh, 1 to 4, he says, you are in Messiah. Like your identity is totally bound up in who he is. All right? Then in verse 5 he says, therefore, because you died with Messiah, consider your physical body like dead to all of the garbage out there that Satan's trying to seduce you with. Um, in verse 8, and uh, verse, verse 9, he again, he repeats that, that pattern. He says, don't lie to each other. Why? Because you've laid aside the old person with its evil practices. You've put on the new person. All right? Did you hear that? He's like, okay, listen. You used to be this person. A lying person. A person who would cheat. But you're not anymore. You let that go. You're a new person. So don't lie to each other anymore. Because that's not who you are anymore. Yeah, um, give you a couple more examples of that here. Uh, there's some specifics. He uh, he lists some things. Oh, actually, here I, I'll just share with you from the beginning of this chapter, actually, because this is my favorite thing. Um, okay, there's a, there's two sides to the gospel. All right, there's the historical objective side. What is that? Yeshua died according to the scriptures. Yeshua was resurrected from death according to the scriptures. Yeshua is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again in glory as was prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. All right? That's the objective historical side of the gospel. There's also the, I'm going to call it like the personal subjective side to the gospel. Okay? The personal subjective side says it's not just that Yeshua died, it's that through your faith you have an inner union with the Messiah. You have an intimate connection with him. And when he died, you actually died with him. Like the old you, 
Every sin that you could commit, every dysfunction, every addiction, every ugly thing in your heart, all of that stuff, when Yeshua died, you died with him. That's the, that's the experiential side of the gospel. And when Yeshua was raised from the dead, you went up with him out of the grave. When, the, when that life just surged into him and he sat up, you sat up with him. And you know what? When the Father's power so entered into Messiah that it raised him through the clouds to the very throne of God in the uppermost heavens, you went up with him. You know what? Yes, you have an earth suit, your physical body. Yes, you do live in the physical world. But the real you is with Yeshua. That's, that's the experiential side of the gospel, eh? And I have to admit, some days I really don't feel like that. Some days I sure, it certainly doesn't feel like my experience. But, but, but get this, Paul says on a practical level, if this is the real you, all bound up with Yeshua, if the real you died with him, and there's a new you that was raised with him that's just like Yeshua in the image of God, glorious, think about that. Focus on him and where he is. Because in the process, you're going to realize who you really are. This is the total antithesis to pop psychology. Pop psychology, as introduced by uh, Abraham Maslow, is all about connecting with yourself, um, knowing yourself, self-actualization. The gospel is the opposite. You know what? Some people are like, I don't like myself. I'm a big mess. I don't really want to know myself any more than I already do. You know what? For people like that, there's good news. You can let that old self die with Yeshua and say, good riddance. And you can let the Father give you a new self in Yeshua. That's like Him. That's good news. That is good news. That is gospel-based psychology. All right? It's not self-actualization. It's the Yeshua actualization. It's not about knowing me. It's about knowing Him. And in the process, you're going to be transformed from the inside out. That's, that's the gospel. Uh, on, on a subjective level. Yeah, okay, let's look at this as our final, uh, final thought here. In Colossians 3, verse 11, it talks about how we, we're new people, but He's also making us new. It's a process, isn't it? I wake up some mornings and I'm really grumpy and I certainly don't feel like a new person. You know? We're in the process of Him making us new so that we'll look like the Father, so that we'll act like Yeshua. And then He, he, gives some, and then he says in verse 11, in this renewal, there's no Greek and Jew. In other words, being renewed into the image of God transcends our ethnicities. It's bigger than your nationality. It's higher than your social class, your social, socioeconomic status. In this renewal, it's all about Yeshua. He's everything in this renewal. And He's in each one of you, is what Paul's saying. He's not slamming Jewish identity. He's not saying that there's no, Jewish, there's no room for Jewish identity in Christ, because if that was true, there'd also be no room for Gentile identity in Christ. He's just saying, it's all about Yeshua in this renewal that we're all experiencing. Therefore, and then he gives a couple of practicals. In this renewal, he says, so God chose you. You're holy. You're beloved. So, and then he lists five qualities. And these are qualities that describe Yeshua and that definitely don't describe me some days. Uh, compassion, you know, being sympathetic with someone, caring, feeling with them. Um, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And on a personal level, I admit... Okay, I'll give you an example from my life about an area where this is, this is tough for me. Like, I... I uh, how I'm in terms of how I'm built, I, I often have high standards in the area of excellence. Like, I really love to do things with excellence. And I'm, a, I'm probably something of an organization freak sometimes. Like, if you look at my desktop on my computer, for instance, nothing is ever out of line. Everything is always organized, right? Every file, every picture, every song is in the right place. It's like my little world where everything is perfect and organized, you know? And, um, and that's just who I am. And others, some for other people, I don't know, what's your desktop look like? You probably, some of us have 30 or 40 things on the desktop of our computer. Some of them are from two years ago and we haven't touched them and we're just not organized. And you know what? That's cool. I love that about you if that's you, you know? But I, okay, well, I admit, you know, sometimes, sometimes, if, I'm, if, I've, if I work closely with someone who isn't as organized as me, because I'm Mr. Ultimate and Perfect Organization, not. But you know, if I'm not, and working with someone who isn't organized, sometimes, you know what, I can, I can get impatient. This is an example, okay? Every one of us have areas where we can get impatient. 
Um, I can get unkind with that person because they're just not organized and it bugs me or it's hard or they're make, they're wasting our time or whatever, you know. Um, I can say unkind things. I can be impatient. Sometimes I can be a little harsh instead of gentle. Okay? So I'm giving you an example from my life that I know is a weak spot where I don't exhibit Yeshua's character qualities. Okay? And now here's the thing. Often people, preachers will read this verse and they'll say, so try a little harder. Just work up that patience. Make that choice. I submit to you that is a false gospel. It isn't about trying harder. You know what? Just let go and let Yeshua live in you because He is alive in you. You know what? You're never going to be patient, but Yeshua is so patient. You're never going to be kind, but He is so kind. I can give you one practical thing though, okay? In my life, for instance, if I'm like extremely organized and maybe I'm freakish in that area and I have tendencies to get mad at people who aren't as organized as me if I'm working with them, I need to drop my expectations of other people. All right? Every one of us in this room have expectations, whether it be of our ex-spouse, of our children, of our co-workers, of whoever. And I submit to you that the degree to which you have expectations of other people is the degree to which you will not fully accept them, you will not fully show them the Father's love, and you will ultimately become impatient with them, unkind to them, not gentle with them. And um, this is the process that I'm going through. You know, when I first got married, I, I made a commitment to not have any expectations of my wife. I said, Father, I just want to accept her for who she is and love her for who she is. That's been a really hard commitment. I mean, seriously, over and over and over again. I'll be like, okay, the Father will show me, you know what? You have an expectation of her. And I'm calling you to love her the way I love her, which is unconditional. I'm calling you to accept her the way I accept her, which is fully. I'm calling you to look at her in the Spirit and see Yeshua in her. And not look at her in the flesh and maybe see flaws or problems. It's the idea. I, I dearly love my wife, you know. So I'm kind of sharing on a personal level here, but we're friends in this room, and I don't know. All I have is my own experiences of these, of these chapters, you know. So as, as a young husband, I'm, I'm growing, and I just share that with you as a young husband who is who's still growing and who's making a lot of mistakes. Do you guys notice I share with you a lot of my struggles and problems and mistakes? You guys probably go home some Shabbat and be like, man, Izzy's a mess. Like, really, this guy has problems, and you all, we can't stop talking about his problems either. But, you know, I'm trying to be real, and I, I, I want to humble myself too, because the humble people, they're the ones who get the grace, and I want the grace. You know, so I'm, I'm a little, have a little bit of an agenda in this. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you in your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.